And in the end, we were successful in the industry paying half a billion dollars back to the treasury and changing the, the rules so they couldn't get away with essentially lying about the value of oil and gas. Welcome to Kickback. My name is Jonathan Kleinpass. Today we welcome Pogo's Executive Director Danielle Bryan to our show. Pogo is a nonpartisan government watchdog organization and Matthew and Danielle talk about Pogo's success in holding the oil and gas industry accountable for paying their fair share of royalties to the American public. Furthermore, they discuss different approaches in anti-corruption work and Danielle shares an anecdote about a visit to the Obama White House. They also debate the implementation of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act. Spoiler alert, some mistakes were made. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Kickback. Over to Danielle and Matthew. Greetings and welcome to the latest episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson, and today I am delighted to have as our guest, Danielle Bryan. Danielle is the executive director of a U.S.-based organization called the Project on Government Oversight, or POGO. Um, POGO is a watchdog organization that focuses principally on the U.S. federal government, focusing on issues related to corruption and integrity, but also a broader set of issues, including waste and fraud and government accountability more generally. And uh, she has graciously agreed to join us today on the podcast to talk about some of Pogo's work and some of her work in advancing these interests in promoting integrity in the U.S. federal government. So, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Matthew. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Terrific, as am I. And maybe we can begin the conversation uh, by having you, by asking you to say a little bit more both about your own background and a bit more about POGO, both how you got interested in these topics generally and how your own work with POGO got started, but also a little bit about POGO's history and the kinds of issues that it focuses on, the kinds of work that it does. That'd be great. Well, I actually started at POGO as an intern in the 1980s when I was in college and came back as the executive director in 1993. So I've been doing this for an embarrassingly long time at this point, <laughs> but I guess it's testament to the fact that I just love my job so much. Uh, we were created in 1981 by Pentagon whistleblowers, people who were inside the Pentagon who were both concerned with wasteful spending, uh, you know, military spending, but also those who were concerned that defense contractors were falsifying tests on weapon systems in order to get paid, but the weapon systems weren't actually working. And at the time, the concept was uh, um, more bucks for less bang was sort of the way they were thinking of it. Uh, over the years, we expanded our purview to looking at the federal government, sort of the entire federal, US federal government, all the uh, branches, uh, all the agencies at that stage, um, waste, fraud, and corruption still with this sort of concept of working with those insiders, those whistleblowers who are going to help us know where the, what we call corruption, and I know uh, you and I intend to have a real conversation about what does corruption mean, whether it's uh, falsified documents, whether it's um, um, sort of what is considered illegal, or what I would argue in the US at least is much corruption is actually legalized corruption, conflicts of interest, the revolving door, uh, 
And uh, obviously many people are aware of the problems of the undue influence that uh, special interests have both on elections, but also on policymaking. And that's you know, really where we have had our biggest focus. Uh, in the 1990s, we started looking at the three, well, the second branch, second big branch of government, the Congress for us, where we started giving trainings to the Congress on how to do oversight of the executive branch. And in the past two years, we've incorporated an organization called the Constitution Project into Pogo and now we're looking at all three branches of the US government. We're now getting involved in the court system and, and how the balance of powers, frankly, these days are really failing. Can you say a little bit more about the kinds of work that you do in this area? So um, do you do mainly uh, legislative advocacy for changes in, in policy or do you do how much of your work is what you might call retail level work focused on particular issues or scandals? Um, just say a little bit more, both for me and for our listeners, so we understand, because different organizations, as you know, as well as anyone in this space, emphasize different things. What, what in POGO in particular, how does it fit into the overall ecology, if you will, of integrity-oriented U.S. civil society organizations? So I would say we're a hybrid. So in some senses, our origin was much more like a journalism, a nonprofit journalism organization where we had sources that we would work with, we would do our own investigations and we would come out with our findings. Uh, but what made us, what makes us different is we then uh, not only have findings uncovering particular investigate, uh, uncovering particular types of corruption or wrongdoing, but we identify the solutions to the problems. And then we have a team of policy uh, advocates that are then working particularly with Capitol Hill, but sometimes also with executive branch agencies to actually implement the recommendations uh, that we find to be the, sort of the solutions to those problems. Since then, we also, so we have the investigators, we have the uh, policy advocates, and we have a team that are doing trainings of Capitol Hill. And in fact, we're even beginning some trainings uh, with the courts. And for example, how can judges have a better idea when the executive branch uh, claims, exec uh, claims executive privilege so that the courts can't see documents, how to sort of challenge those uh, secrecy assertions that the executive branches want to do. So those are the sort of, I think that's the biggest picture array of the kinds of work we do. So we're sort of a hybrid and I don't, I don't know that it's a, a model that I've seen in other places. Are there advantages to having those different functions all under one roof as, as it were? You mentioned just a second ago that you haven't seen many other organizations that have that kind of hybrid model, especially because many people in our listening audience might be themselves civil society activists or interested in working in that space. Can you talk a little bit both about maybe some of the advantages of having that hybrid model of civil society activism, but perhaps also whether there are particular obstacles or challenges that might arise when one organization tries to have that wide range of functions? Well, I would say the, the biggest advantage is that it's, it's fun. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know so many journalists who are uh, frustrated with the, the limits that, that uh, journalism puts on them where they can't then pursue the issue that they've uncovered and do something about it other than expose it. Uh, and so that, uh, for our team, that is one of the great joys is being uh, part of the solution, not just part of exposing the problem. So that's the advantage. The disadvantage, honestly, is that uh, sometimes funders have a hard time figuring out how to navigate this. 
those that fund journalism, investigative journalism in the nonprofit sector are uncomfortable with the idea that we also do advocacy. So I would, I would say that's probably the biggest challenge, but it's one that we over time are overcoming. You know, journalism has evolved in my professional lifetime to have a little bit more leeway on the sort of the solutions oriented journalism. Um, and I think as a result, we're seeing a little bit more play. So I would encourage your listeners uh, globally to think about this model as, as an option that I don't know um, others have really pursued before. So maybe to make this all a little bit more concrete, I know that you, you, you've been this, with this organization for almost three decades and you've worked on a lot of different projects, but could you maybe pick one that would be a nice example or illustration where you think that the kind of advocacy work that you and Pogo have done has made a difference and maybe present a brief synopsis of this to get a sense of kind of cradle to grave uh, how Pogo possibly in conjunction with partners or others has taken some issue and worked on it and achieved a positive result. And I ask this in part because as, as I'm sure you know, not only in the US but around the world, there's often a lot of frustration at the lack of progress on a lot of these issues. So I think sure. just hearing a narrative of uh, an area where you think that uh, the kind of advocacy your organization has been able to engage in has made a, a real tangible difference and how that happened might be really helpful. And I'll ask you about problems and challenges and difficulties in a moment, but let's start on a positive okay. note. Tell me, tell me a story. That's fun. Well, um, I'll probably pick one because it, was, it started in the earlier days of the organization where I had the, the, uh, the pleasure of getting to be the investigator. And so, uh, so I have sort of the personal beginning to end uh, narrative. And that involved some, in, some whistleblowers that came to us that were exposing uh, corruption in the oil and gas field where the oil and gas industry uh, is in the United States allowed to uh, drill for oil and gas on public lands, which is, which is I know, sort of an, a, a unique uh, American experience where these are government-owned lands um, and the, the proceeds of the, that drilling are intended, a percentage of them are then paid by the companies back to the federal government. Uh, and I think an important part of that story is that, that those funds that come from the oil and gas drilling are typically earmarked to go straight to public school systems in the states where the drilling is happening, whether it's in Oklahoma or California and Louisiana. And some whistleblowers came to us and said, you know, the oil and gas industry is lying to the government uh, on the value of that oil and, uh, that they're producing on public lands. And the reason this matters is the, the amount that they pay the government is a percentage of that value. So by, by devaluing the, um, the, the, um, the, the amount that they're, uh, they drilled meant they were paying the government less, but it was in the billions of dollars over many, many years that this was taking place. And so we, uh, worked with the whistleblowers. We used the Freedom of Information Act, which remains a very important tool for us to get uh, internal documents. Uh, we worked with the Congress, both with Democrats and Republicans in the Congress. We, um, we issued reports as an organization. We co-issued reports with some congressional offices. We helped get hearings on whether this is, you know, whether this was, whether this was happening, essentially. Uh, it's, 
became a huge sort of front page story uh, over time because there were a couple of, of uh, members of Congress who really took this on. Um, and it was starting actually, I guess, during the Clinton administration, it went for many years, uh, a big battle where industry decided, uh, well, if this is going, if, if, if they're going to lose out on this sort of windfall that they were making by, by scamming the government, they're going to change the whole methodology for how to pay the government. You know, this is how, this is how these big industries work. Uh, and so it became this sort of titanic fight in the Congress uh, where there was a, a, um, a Texas uh, senator who was putting a hold on legislation to prevent the, the administration from changing the rules to require industry to pay actually what they owed. And in the end, we were successful in, um, in the industry paying half a billion dollars back to the treasury and changing the, the rules so they couldn't get away with essentially lying about the value of oil and gas. Um, and, but that effort sort of beginning to end was sort of like a 20 year arc. Um, and they super came after us as an organization. I could have a whole other conversation with you about how um, uh, friends of the oil and gas industry in the Congress started having hearings into Pogo and our whistleblowers and, and who were they and um, you know, hearings that went on until midnight and they wouldn't allow us to have opening statements. It was very star chamberish. Um, and, and so um, it was both scary because at the time we, we were like a three person organization. Um, so we were tiny going against the 15 biggest oil companies, uh, but we were able to sort of fix that problem, but it did take such a long time. So when you, when you suggest, and you're right, that when you look at uh, sort of increments with which we make change, sort of even year by year, it's, it's hard to feel like you've won. You have to look at a, a larger arc. In fact, I was just having that conversation with my colleagues at Pogo who was sort of frustrated as we're working on some legislation that's protecting inspectors general, which are an important element of the oversight mechanisms in the United States. They're independent watchdogs that work at the federal agency level, but they also report directly to Congress. And, and we have a huge problem in the US right now where President Trump is firing them um, inappropriately. And, and she's, my colleague is frustrated that sort of the change that we're getting in the legislation is so incremental. And I'm saying you've got to look more than sort of in one month increments to success in our field. It it's, it's often takes years. And um, I think for any of us who have a career in this space, we have to be patient. I think that's very good advice that I've actually heard from many people who've worked for, for many years in this area. It's frustrating, of course, because we would like to see significant change happen on a more rapid uh, timetable, but it's not always realistic. The, the story that you just told actually uh, calls to mind a couple of issues or challenges that I've heard other people who work in civil society talk about or have been discussed. And I want to ask you about them. So uh, the first one has to do with strategically how an organization like POGO or one that's interested in those issues orients itself towards the, the government in power, whether one takes a more confrontational mm. approach or a more, I'm looking for the right word, maybe conciliatory or engagement-oriented approach. And I realize this is an oversimplification, but again, as you know, in this space, in the ecology, as I called it, of civil society organizations, some 
are really in the, the, the grand tradition of the muckraking reporters of the early 20th century, the progressive era. They're calling people out, they're naming and shaming, they're really using very aggressive rhetoric to uh, condemn what they see as malfeasance in government. And that has a number of advantages. But one of the problems with it is if you want a seat at the table, when people are negotiating changes, oftentimes those organizations or those individuals who take a very aggressive confrontational posture get frozen out. So the alternative is to have a more engagement-oriented approach, more conciliatory approach, one that doesn't focus so much on naming and shaming. But there's a concern there that if one is massaging one's message too much to ingratiate your organization with the people in power who are oftentimes the source of the problem, you may be compromising too much or not really uh, sharpening the message that needs to be sharpened. So again, this may be a false choice. This may be an oversimplification. I don't work in the civil society world, but I wanted to ask you, since I've heard other people discuss this challenge or tension, first of all, is it a real challenge or tension or is it a kind of a false dilemma I'm creating? But if it is real, how at POGO you try to manage or navigate this difficulty of wanting to be appropriately aggressive and, and, and you know, call out the bad actors for being bad actors, but also be able to do the kinds of things you've talked about where you sit around at the table and you work with the legislative branch and you work with the executive to, to affect meaningful change from the inside. I, I think it's actually a very apt uh, question. And uh, I have uh, honestly, often struggled with exactly the dilemma that you're describing. Um, a good example of that, I think, is during the Obama administration. Uh, we were very concerned about uh, that administration's prosecution of whistleblowers. Uh, and uh, uh, Pogo was, and I was, uh, especially in the first term of that administration, very engaged with a lot of their internal uh, deliberations on uh, White House policies. We were regular uh, visitors to the White House. And uh, then there came a time where uh, a few of us in civil society decided to try to elevate the president's commitment, which he made his first day in office, to transparency by giving him a, um, an award for his transparency. And I agreed to be a part of that conversation on the condition that I'd be allowed to also point out these concerns that I had about how, his, you know, how that legacy was being undermined by his prosecution of whistleblowers. So I was literally uh, in the White House, in the Oval Office with, I think it was five of my colleagues from civil society and, uh, and and had what a friend just recently uh, described as, is that I was really challenging the president directly in the White House um, because I believe strongly that that is an important um, black mark on what would, I would argue otherwise have been a pretty strong record on, in our space on uh, anti-corruption, uh, at least in his administration, um, I would say that he had fewer examples of corruption than, than many other administrations. Um, and I have to say, I don't think I got invited back to many more meetings in the White House after I, I, I made that point to him. It was an important point to make. I don't regret it at all. Um, 
I do think it actually helped to result in um, in their changing their position in one of the prosecutions, in fact. So I'm, I'm glad I took that position. I think the most important thing for any of your listeners who are sort of in that space in their governments and, and having to think about that, and I, I recognize even with this Trump administration that in the US we have more luxuries than many of your colleagues have in other um, countries. Um, but I'm, uh, I feel as long as I'm not thinking, you know, maybe I'll get uh, in the next administration and I'm not worried about getting a job or sort of um, advancing my career by having those relationships, it helps me feel more comfortable uh, pushing back on an administration, even though they generally are doing the right thing. I think that's one of the biggest problems I've seen is people who start to pull back, uh, pull their punches because they sort of hope they can get into the administration. That's typically what I see as a big problem. Yeah, and that, that brings up the revolving door issue that you mentioned earlier, we, which, which you usually think of in terms of industry lobbyists and so forth, but that's also true of civil society and civil society activists. It depends on the administration, but it seems like those same kinds of pressures without impugning anybody's good faith, but it right. must make a difference if that's- People, are, people are human beings, right? And so um, you have to recognize that that creates certain incentives. And, and of course, I don't want to spend more time on, on civil society when really our, our collective concern are the sort of the, the um, powerful special corporate interests uh, and that kind of revolving door and just um, probably to beat a dead horse for your audience that has already thought this through a lot. But I think the biggest problem is when you have people who are in government in, um, uh, uh, in a position to be advancing public, the public interest, but they have that competing cognitive dissonance of, but if I hold that industry or company to account, will I be less likely to get that job from them? That then therefore means they are uh, less likely to do their job the way we want them to while they're in government. And I, I, think that is, I think that is as big a problem as campaign finance reform is. It's just not simply recognized, I think, as, um, as pernicious as it is. Time permitting, I hope we can circle back to that topic because I, I, I do have some questions about that revolving door concern or hypothesis. But before we get there, I want to ask about another issue that's closely related to the question I asked you a moment ago about balancing the interest in engagement with the interest in taking an appropriately aggressive strategy that also connects to something that you said earlier. And that has to do with the partisan complexion or the potential partisan interpretation of the kinds of work that POGO or other anti-corruption organizations do. My understanding is that POGO was started as a nonpartisan or bipartisan organization and that it's worked hard to maintain that reputation. You just emphasized a second ago the way that you uh, were critical of the Obama administration and so forth. My question is about whether it can nonetheless be a challenge when the political parties, though they both have their problems, don't seem frankly symmetrical when it comes to this issue. When it appears that one political party or one leader or administration is much, much worse on the issues that POGO or similar organizations care about than the other political party or another administration. And we don't need to you know, dance around it. The Trump is the elephant in the room here. There's a sense 
I think, widely shared and widely substantiated, including on some work that I've done on my blog, that the Trump administration is far, far worse on issues related to conflict of interest, potential corruption, profiteering, and so forth, even if we put aside twilight zone issues like revolving door and lobbying, even on the, the real, the things that everyone would agree are ethical problems, much, much worse. And it seems like the challenge, and again, I've heard other people in the civil society world talk about this, is on the one hand, you don't want to lose your reputation as, a, as an honest broker, bipartisan, nonpartisan organization. On the other hand, you don't want to succumb to what in the U.S. discourse we sometimes call today both sidesism, mm -hmm. where you know, there's a reluctance to actually call things as you see them and to try to say, well, it's all equal. Everyone engages. The Democrats and the Republicans are just as bad when that's actually not true. So as I, as I asked before, a similar kind of question, is that accurate as a description of the challenge an organization like Pogo faces, or am I creating a, a false or misleading dilemma? And if it is a real thing, how do you and your colleagues at Pogo think about managing this tension between wanting to maintain your nonpartisan bona fides while at the same time not succumbing to the temptation to try to make it seem like all the parties are the same and all the administrations are the same on these issues when they're not? So that's a lot. Um, I'll start with something you said in the very beginning of that that I think is important. I don't think that nonpartisanship and bipartisanship are the same thing, and I think it's an important distinction. Uh, I, we are um, uh, aggressively nonpartisan, but we are not bipartisan. And I think that's important to get to the point that you were making, but also even more fundamentally taking the Trump administration aside, I've often seen bipartisanship really just amount to um, the race to the, to the bottom common denominator uh, where you can just have a Democrat and a Republican funded by some corporate special interest agreeing on terrible policy. So I'm not sure what we get from that other than sort of the whitewashing of bad policy by calling it bipartisan. Um, so in this administration, uh, the challenge I would say has been more the fact that the, the Trump administration has been so bullying that it has successfully silenced Republicans in uh, who are currently elected who would normally be speaking up and pushing back. So, uh, so we, for example, were successful in getting dozens of former elected Republican officials to, uh, to rise up against the president's uh, uh, use of the National Emergencies Act to declare that the border uh, with Mexico was an emergency that required him to essentially unconstitutionally take congressional authorities over uh, federal spending to spend it on building a wall. That is so anathema to a conservative viewpoint. And it was really easy for us to get all kinds of even recently elected Republican officials to say this is completely unacceptable and encouraging their currently elected colleagues uh, to fight back. As it turned out, we were successful in getting Republicans in the House and the Senate to vote against the president's um, um, act, but not enough Republicans to overcome the veto that he delivered on that. So, so I would say the issue is 
if you stay nonpartisan and really are values-based, and in this case, this was in, in what I would describe an element of corruption, which is abuse of power, where one, when the executive branch is, you know, uh, abusing its power, um, you, you can continue to be gen genuinely nonpartisan, attracting Republicans. It's just, um, I think the problem has been there are many people who are our colleagues who have fallen into an easy narrative of just demonizing all Republicans. And I think that closes, unfortunately, that closes doors for them so that it doesn't help them uh, sort of get the change that they need. Because right now in the US, Republicans control the Senate. And if you're closing the door with, with any Republicans, then you're not really, you're not, you're not going to get any laws passed, are you? Absolutely. I think that's, that's really helpful. And thank you for, for correcting my, my inappropriate conflation of, of bipartisanship with nonpartisanship. It's a really, really important point. Um, a lot more we could talk about there, but I feel like I would be remiss if this far into our conversation, I did not bring up the work that Pogo is doing to improve oversight of the spending of coronavirus disaster relief funding. So all over the world, including in the United States, the coronavirus is not only a public health emergency, but it's an economic emergency as well. A lot of people can't go to work or have to work from home. Many, many more people are unemployed. And the U.S. government pushed through what some people, I think, inaccurately refer to as a stimulus package. I think it's more accurately described as a disaster relief package right. for small businesses, for unemployed Americans, and, and, and others. There's a lot of concern, and has been from the beginning, again, not only in the United States, this is a worldwide concern, but there's a concern that whenever you have disaster relief spending, whether it's to deal with a public health emergency or something like an earthquake or a hurricane, there's the concern that when you need to push a lot of money out the door very quickly, that it's going to be misappropriated, misspent. Uh, concerns about corruption, conflict of interest are very high. And my understanding is that POGO has been very involved both with pushing for legal or regulatory changes to improve oversight, but also, and this gets back to your point about a hybrid model, engaging in some direct oversight of its own. So could you talk a little bit uh, more about what, both in general terms, what you think the biggest risks, challenges, uh, existing problems are with how the economic relief funds associated with coronavirus are being spent in the United States, and then also what POGO and maybe some of your allies in civil society or elsewhere are trying to do to, to address these problems? Yes. Uh, well, the first thing we were doing in the early days and as the law was being written was to ensure that there were some uh, mechanisms built into the law to create oversight. Because uh, when you have this kind of cross-agency emergency funding, we didn't have in place the mechanisms already uh, ingrained in our systems to be able to provide oversight of such massive amounts of, of spending. Uh, and what we are seeing now is that in the execution of this law, uh, there were huge, uh, we believe, failures of oversight that are, are, it's still maybe a little bit too early to know for sure, but we have great indicators that there are, um, that corruption has successfully seeped into this, which is of no surprise, which is what we were so worried about, right? So, so great journalists have quickly been able to turn up cronyism, which is, you know, a, 
uh, global form of corruption, right? Where people who had political connections or had easier access to the sources of funds, for example, because they were already the, the wealthiest clients of certain banks, they were at the front of the line to access these funds, even though they were not the most, uh, the most in need of them. And so across the US, I'm not sure how, uh, how much it's been picked up internationally, um, there are regional stories about certain entities that received funds, of course, at the same time that many small businesses did not receive funds. And of course, many of them now have gone under. And there's real questions about why did these, these uh, certain uh, either uh, sole practitioners or employers who laid off their employees, why did they get access to these funds? A lot of the problem has come from, uh, I think, there was slightly sloppy language in how some of the law was written. Some of it is that the, the administration was also really, as I look at it more and more, almost relying on the conscience of, of loan applicants to, rather than saying, if you have access to billions of dollars in capital, you absolutely do not qualify. They said things like, you should not, and sort of leave it up to the uh, to the the applicants to decide. So we're seeing, we early on saw you know huge international corporations that were benefiting, or you know extremely wealthy universities. Uh, I think that the host of this podcast is one of them that um, was publicly shamed and then turned the money back. But there are many that have not turned the money back because they didn't legally have to. Uh, the damage that's done, and this is the thing that I think is so important when we talk about corruption. Yes, it is a waste of funds because these are loans that are at 1%, even if they pay the loans back, it's essentially free money for these entities. But much more damaging is who tried to get the loan, couldn't even get the loan officer to call them back and is now out of business and who were their employees. And those tend to be in the historically marginalized communities that didn't have as easy access to bank, uh, banks or didn't already have pre-existing relationships and are again left um, left out of the out of the uh, the in, the intended purpose, which was to keep keep them afloat, keep these industries or these these businesses alive. And that's just uh, I think we're increasingly going to see sort of a catastrophic mistake. And I feel great urgency at fixing these problems because if we wait another year to really have the analysis that you know in natural slow form to figure out where the money went, it is far too late to, to recover from. And, and that's why I feel great urgency about it. The urgency is undeniable. Just one small thing. It was not the host of this podcast, but the host of this podcast's employer. I get nothing. <laughs> Uh, I but actually, you personally, <laughs> yeah, no, just 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 trying to inject a little levity in what's certainly not a funny situation. <laughs> but you know, the the way you just describe that problem, and it's undoubtedly a problem, does raise an issue that you and I have talked about before. And I do want to bring it up here, which is how we understand corruption or what we frame as corruption problems, because what you just described in terms of the problems with the allocation of pandemic relief funds, and you use the language of corruption to describe it, struck me. And again, I don't, I don't care really strongly about defining terms in a particular way, but it struck me that it was a mix of what you might describe as illegal or at least certainly unethical abuse of the program to allocate funds in a way that they're not supposed to be allocated and what you might call 
bad program design that is not imposing strict eligibility criteria. And then there were institutions that we think maybe shouldn't have been the kind of institutions that could get this money, but that weren't doing anything illegal and arguably maybe weren't even exploiting personal political connections. So I'll take, since you brought up Harvard University, I'll bring up Harvard University, which you're right, was shamed to giving back the money. I don't think that Harvard University has a close, especially friendly relationship with the Trump administration or the Trump Treasury Department. I suspect that Harvard University and its financial and general counsel's office are relatively sophisticated actors. And they looked at this and they said, hey, would we be eligible for the money? By the way, I don't know anything. I have no inside information. I'm guessing. And the lawyer said, uh, yeah, looks like it. And, you know, okay. I mean, we're going to have to go online in the fall. It's going to cost us a, a bunch of money too. And then, of course, there was a public outcry and Harvard, which is an extremely PR conscious institution, gave it back. But I guess what I'm pressing you on is it seems like these issues, though related broadly thematically and that you want the money to go to the right people, are not the same. It seems like there's a big difference between saying this was a flawed program design that gave a lot of money to maybe a lot of people who probably didn't need it or didn't deserve it, and saying that within, even within the system that we've got, people are abusing the system, breaking or bending the rules, exploiting their cronyish relationship with the administration and so forth to get money that, that they don't deserve. And I guess I, I, I put to you the question, do you disagree with my assertion that these things are sufficiently different that we should think about them differently, and if so, why? Um, and why do you lump them together under the rubric of corruption, where some people might say we should really distinguish, you know, maybe not perfectly, but, but reasonably sharply between bad policy design and corruption of the program? So you're absolutely right that um, I think many of those, those sort of uh, sh named and shamed organizations were not political cronies. There are other examples of uh, businesses that were related to the Kushner family and others that where there is clear cronyism. That isn't what we were discussing then. But what we were discussing was what I would, would continue to argue is an element of corruption, which is the ability of powerful special interests to skew public policy. And in this case, Harvard is probably likely the premier customer of whoever their bank is. And it is, what I meant to say is our system still has such clear winners and losers whose, whose power is outsized in their ability to skew public policy. And this is an example of all of those. First of all, it is which banks got the, the, you know, the biggest uh, chunk of the funds in the first place. And then who did those banks then turn to as their favorite clients? while all those that the Congress really intended for, it, for these funds to go to were not even getting their, their calls returned from the you know, potential loan officers because the banks were so busy focusing on those you know, much more powerful institutions. That's really what I meant. So that is not about cronyism, but it is about how public policy, I think that is such a clear example of how our public policy was skewed by those special interests that just had um, outsized power. And the damage that then was done by, by not those individual, not just those individual businesses, but the communities that they served, the, the employees that they had who were left um, uh, uh, unemployed. And, and that was absolutely not the intent. We all know, and this was 
an example of bipartisanship, the Congress, or nonpartisanship, the Congress came together and passed really a pretty fabulous, the intentions were really quite uh, honorable. And I think it's something that, that as a country, we should have been proud that they came together and, 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 um, and wrote, I think they just left too much up to the Treasury Department and the SBA uh, to figure out in implementation. And I think that's where there are real failures. So one thing this makes me wonder is, you know, we've had a bunch of disasters in the United States over the last couple of decades that have required an emergency infusion of funds. There have been natural disasters on the order of Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy. Uh, there was a financial crisis in 2007, 2008. And now we're in the midst of a public health crisis. And my impression is someone who doesn't work in this area, so this is an outsider's view, is it seems like the attempts to address corruption, cronyism, misappropriation of various kinds, bracketing for the moment the other very important issues you raised about broad power influencing uh, program design, just issues of corruption, embezzlement, misappropriation, et cetera, these issues seem to keep recurring. And it seems with each emergency response, there's a different, almost ad hoc set of institutions that get created to deal with it. And some of them are better and some of them are worse. So my sense is that in Katrina, the problems of corruption, especially embezzlement and misappropriation and the response were really bad. After Hurricane Sandy, they were there, but not nearly as bad, partly because the lessons of Katrina had been uh, mm -hmm. learned to some extent. In the economic stimulus package after the 2007-2008 financial crisis, there were certain safeguards put in, into place. In the CARES Act, which is the name of the coronavirus relief package, there were other safeguards put into place, but they weren't the same. And am I wrong about this? It just seems like with each disaster relief package, we're maybe not literally starting from ground zero, but it seems like there's a, always a new set of ad hoc mechanisms rather than some kind of set framework for overseeing the allocation of emergency funds. And I, I guess I scratch my head a little bit and wonder why this is. Well, I would say that actually, because we were very involved in, in, in developing the oversight mechanisms in the CARES Act, and we had been very involved in the oversight mechanisms back in the 2007-2008 uh, recovery. And we did think that we were incorporating lessons learned because that was a pretty successful recovery uh, effort with with arguably very little known fraud that we're aware of. Uh, I think the problem now we're seeing is that, of course, that was a, a different crisis. And this is a crisis where we're trying to reach literally millions of people directly rather than a much more limited, for the most part, during the Obama administration, there were big block funds going to localities or states and it was much easier to track. We now have this um, wide open gusher of funds going out in tiny increments. Um, and I don't think we had anticipated the challenges that were gonna be created from that alone. Uh, but we, I have to say also, and this is you know, where I'm not gonna do a whataboutism, I think that at that time, the Obama administration was really serious. I mean, I think they thought there was political advantage to avoiding fraud and corruption, and they were aggressive about it. And this administration does not see things that way. You see that from their efforts to prevent even the most basic transparency of who was getting the funds because they don't believe in, they very clearly don't believe in oversight and accountability as, as a political advantage to them. 
Well, that's de depressing and sobering to think about. Um, we're, we're almost at the end of our time, but I did want to circle back to the revolving door issue because we touched on it before and I said I wanted to come back to it and I, I, I want to uh, talk a little bit about it. And, and let, me, um, let me pose this to you as a, a friendly challenge or at least a question because the story that you told before is one that I've heard very frequently and it sounds quite plausible. And it's also one, by the way, where I've seen some serious economics research that backs it up, that in some contexts, when people are in government, they're charged of, let's say, writing regulations for the banking industry, but they anticipate that in a few months or years, they might want to exit their government job and take a job in the banking industry. This might affect their decision-making in ways that lead them to be less, shall we say, aggressive or stringent than they might otherwise be. I, I buy that. That seems plausible to me. But then I think about the area of the revolving door that I know best because it's the one that affects most of my students and many of my friends and colleagues, and that's, that's uh, the law. And I think about Department of Justice uh, attorneys or agency attorneys, and in that context, I actually don't see this phenomenon. If anything, it's the opposite, that the people who are uh, government lawyers who have the opportunity to prosecute, let's say, big banks, I'm not aware of any evidence that they go easy on the banks because they want to get a job at the law firms that do the defense work later on. If anything, it's the opposite, right? How do you, how do you convince the people on the other side that they really want to hire you? You show that you're an excellent lawyer and super aggressive and the, the, the person you want on your side in a dogfight, right? And so I'm having trouble reconciling the story that you're telling in one context with what I seem to see in another context. And I'd add on to that, maybe, a, a, maybe one cheer for the revolving door. One of the advantages of that has, again, thinking about my own students, how can we convince super talented young lawyers to go pursue careers in government agencies that pay a tiny fraction of what they could make working for Wall Street firms. Well, some of them are so committed to public service, they'll be you know, Department of Justice lifers. And I know people who I graduated with from law school who do that, and I have nothing but respect for them. But a bunch of these people say, well, you know what? I can go work for five years for the government, five, 10 years, and I know that I've got this safety net. I can, I can like, after that time, I can go work for a law firm and make a ton of money and, and it'll be fine. And so the salary differential isn't as bad. So I guess this is my attempt to complicate a little bit the simple version of the revolving door story because it does strike me as a bit more complicated than the simple uh, government regulators want a private sector job and so are nice to the private sector when in government narrative. And what well, are your thoughts I, on that? I think it's a great challenge and I think that the legal system is slightly different in that there is uh, a culture around prosecutors, certainly those you know who are active prosecutors and U.S. attorneys, that that is a uh, that becomes sort of a part of who you are, right? It's, it's harder, I think, to be a prosecutor and then become essentially a white-collar defense attorney. I think that's, it, it's less uh, natural cultural uh, change. But however, having said that, again, I will uh, be critical of the Obama administration, you look at the Justice Department of the Obama administration and how many Wall Street banks did they prosecute? for the, for the um, economic crisis at that time. 
I, I think I commend you to Jesse Isinger's book. He works at ProPublica called The Chicken Shit Club. Um, and it gets to the heart of, you know, actually some of it is about the revolving door and there wasn't a lot of stomach to go after the, the firms that they ultimately wanted to go work for. So I'm not, I'm not saying, I mean, I love many Justice Department lawyers. I love, you know, but, um, but there is some of that there too. Fair enough. I will commend to you a book by a colleague of mine at Duke University Law School named Sam Buell called Capital Offenses, uh, which I think is a very interesting and well-researched book that has a bit of a different perspective from the Eisgruber book, with which I am familiar and have my own thoughts, but I won't get into them now because we're almost out of time. Uh, before we close, uh, although we could go on for another hour just about the revolving door debate, let me just ask you, as some final thoughts for our listeners, looking ahead, what do you anticipate both for you and for your organization are the most significant challenges or issues that need to be addressed? If you wanted to kind of share with the wider world, both domestically and globally in the anti-corruption community, what you would name as the one, two, three biggest, highest priority items to advance a pro-integrity anti-corruption agenda in the United States, what would they be? I would say that what we've learned from the Trump administration is that our laws are just not good enough. I think that the uh, assumption that um, having a litigation strategy could, could work in this administration when we've seen very clear violations of our ethics standards, for example, our anti-corruption rules, have been um, shown not to be adequate in part because the courts take too long as you see these Supreme Court decisions that are just coming out now Will they ultimately be resolved by the end of this uh, administration is unclear. But even the fact that it is true that our ethics uh, rules that apply to federal employees at the moment do not apply to the president. That's just a fact. Uh, and so I think that the first thing we need to be doing is looking at strengthening our laws, particularly around the powers and the immunities that are currently afforded to presidents or presidents uh, in the United States. So. I would say that's my number one focus <laughs> um, in whether he wins another term or whether it's a, a Biden presidency. I think that is something that is unquestionably, everything else falls from that uh, because if we have, if we're allowing sort of flagrant corruption at the top, it's hard to imagine that we're going to be successful with all the trickling down um, without dealing with that first. That seems like... Uh absolutely right to me. And I hope it's a lesson that many, many people will take to heart, no matter who wins the upcoming U.S. presidential election. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise and insights with our audience. I really appreciate it. Um, our guest again uh, on Kickback has been uh, Daniel Bryan, the executive director of the Project on Government Oversight. Daniel, thank you so much. And I just want to say on, my, on behalf of myself, and I'm sure many of our listeners very much appreciate and admire all the work that you and your colleagues are, are doing. So keep it up. Thank you so much, Matthew. It was fun. Bye-bye. Dear listeners, I highly recommend that you pay a visit to Pogo's website. You'll find many interesting write-ups on a variety of different topics. You'll also find information about their work in regards to oil and gas royalties there. We've also linked to an article about Harvard paying back the $8.6 million of stimulus money and are linking to the two books that Danielle and Matthew mentioned. Now you have to be strong, because after this episode, we're going to take a little summer break. We're going to be back on September 7th with our next episode. Thank you for listening. 
stay safe. Kickback is a collaboration between the Global Anti-Corruption Blog and the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network. Kickback is made by Matthew Stevenson, Niels Kürbis, Christopher Starke and me, Jonathan Kleinpass. With music by Kehan Gokar. <laughs>